Thank you, Andrew. Hey, my name's Jack. I'm uh, Bethany Northeast lead pastor. Welcome to some new faces and uh, visitors. Happy Palm Sunday to you. Whoever's son that was that said Hosanna on the way out listens really well. Like he, Becca said, he could say it. You can say as you go. And he's like, I'm saying it all the way. So that's awesome. Um, this is Palm Sunday. We are, have been in a series, though, throughout uh, Lent called I Am Enough, and we've been looking at the I Am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. So we're in the sixth of seven in that series. We'll finish it next Sunday on Easter. Uh, today we're on the, uh, this famous uh, well-known statement from John 14, which is I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But before we dive into that, I want to pray. And we will take a moment this morning to pray for our brothers and sisters in the church in uh, Egypt and Cairo. As many of you know, there was a bombing in two separate uh, Coptic churches in Cairo this morning that killed a number of people as they were celebrating like we are Palm Sunday. And so actually there are several Coptic churches, Eritrean and Ethiopian Coptic churches in our neighborhood, uh, two of which are just up 125th and around the corner from my house. And so uh, I was driving past there this morning just thinking of kind of their hearts being troubled, as Jesus said. So we'll pray that Jesus uh, is with us this morning, but also he's with uh, those brothers and sisters in uh, Egypt today that are mourning the loss of so many. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are with us, that you promise where two or more are gathered uh, to be in our presence. Thank you. And thank you that um, as we open your word, your word is life to us. And even as you declared your, your, your identity is the way, truth, and life, that your word brings life into our lives. God, we pray for uh, brothers and sisters around the world gathering today as they celebrate, but specifically for uh, our sisters and brothers in Cairo and in the church there that's uh, experiencing so much loss right now and um, fear. Um, Just think of what you you say in the Gospels more than any other phrase, Jesus, do not be afraid. Uh, So God, would that be what our brothers and sisters in Cairo hear? You're with them. And they have no reason to be afraid, ultimately. But we do pray for your comfort. Pray for your peace in that place. We thank you that you're with us, Jesus. And we pray in your name. Amen. All right. Uh, Well, actually, that word about... I'm sorry, I have my back turned to you just a sec. (laughs) That word about trouble is actually... An important word uh, because it's the word that uh, frames this conversation that we have or Jesus is having with the disciples in John 13 and 14. John 14 verse 1, it begins, uh, if you remember what Andrew read for us, do not let your hearts be troubled. Uh, Actually, the end of John, if you read through the whole chapter, Jesus says something very similar in John 14, 26 or 27, do not let your hearts be troubled nor, nor let them be afraid. And so these are sort of two mirroring declarations that act like bookends to the Gospel of John chapter 14. And it kind of begs a question, if you're reading the story through, what's going on that, would, that Jesus would need to say this twice? Uh, and I'll tell you what's going on. This tight-knit community of followers, disciples, is really beginning to fall apart. So we learn in Luke's Gospel that around the same time, they've begun to have an argument. They're sitting at dinner... Last Supper, which we're going to celebrate on Thursday, uh, 
And they begin to argue about which one of them in the kingdom of God, Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of God, which one's the greatest among them? Which one's most important to Jesus? I mean, if you can imagine, right? <laughs> Jesus is going to die the next day, and they're, they're having a little fight about who's the most important. And then uh, just before that, Jesus reveals that Judas is going to betray him. And then just after that, he reveals that to Peter, to his face, as we read, that Peter's going to deny him not once, but three times before the sun rises. And this, to ice the cake, Jesus decides now is the time to leave. <laughs> this is it, guys. It's the curtains falling, you know. This whole thing's over. Uh, and, and yet, if you read this whole story, the, the, the scenes leading up to uh, this climactic ending are just full of infighting and deceit and deception and uh, sort of a feeling of abandonment. And it's, it's just this big mess. As you read John kind of through, they're facing a, just a heap of trouble as a community. And in fact, if you read on, Jesus says in John 16, that to be a, just to simply be alive in the world is to face trouble. In the world, you'll, you'll experience much trouble, is what he says there. So this isn't really just about their mess, though it is about their mess. It's, it's really about the mess we, fought, we all find ourselves in. Um, the world is full of trouble. We all know it. We've seen, as I just prayed, we've seen and heard graphic images of it this week. Um, and that's just, that's on a global scale. Our hearts are breaking for what's going on in the world in Syria, in Egypt, and all over the world. And we're kind of afraid. I mean, if you're like me, afraid. Uh, if you have kids especially, of what the future holds, right? And then many of us have experienced trouble on a very personal level, like whether that's the realization you're going to have to work 10 more years and you, when you thought you were about to retire. I know there's many of you in the room that we're thinking, oh, it's, it's that time I get to retire, and, and then the, the market crashes, and you have 10 more years. This is my father-in-law's story, 10 more years of work. Uh, or a lot of you nowhere near that time, but you hate your job. You absolutely loathe tomorrow morning. And you wonder, is this it? Is this the next 40 years of my life? I'm kind of resigned to that movie, Office Space, right? Uh, or for many of us in the room, we're parents, and the trouble is kids. You know, <laughs> like you are having a really hard time with kid issues and insecurity on your capacity to just love a human being because they press all your buttons, not being too personal here, but and your ability to, to discipline well and provide and all those things that you're just kind of feeling vulnerable all the time. Or there's a lot of married people in the room and, and the issue is communication. Like how do you communicate with another human being? <laughs> you thought you knew how to do that until you got married and then you have trouble with intimacy and you feel isolated and lonely, and that's the opposite of what you thought you were getting into. Or for everyone in the room. So we have married people, we have parents, and then there's this reality that all of us are facing something troublesome with, when you look at incurable disease, intractable racism, political turmoil, irreversible climate change. Like, we are just in a world of trouble right now. Our trouble, their trouble, it's just this mess. And what Jesus says twice, don't let your hearts be troubled. In other words, I think what he's saying is uh, trouble, however it comes, it's going to come. It's just part and parcel of being alive in the world. Your life, my life, our shared life, you're not impervious to it just because you claim to follow Jesus. You're not immune to trouble. There's not this bubble around you as a Christian that protects you. And he says, I don't, don't let your hearts be troubled. I don't want you to be too troubled by the trouble. Okay, That's to say, don't be overthrown by it. Don't be consumed by it. It's all around you all the time. Don't let it just overwhelm you. And do have confidence and strength 
in the midst of it. And I'm going to show you, by the way, how to, do, how to have that confidence and how to have that strength. That's why I'm with you. And how to develop resilience to live. That's what this whole gospel is about, developing resilience and grit. So it's really practical. Jesus is so practical. So practical that he gives us a number of things in John 14, as, he, as this all winds down, as the curtain's falling, to strengthen us in the midst of trouble that we're facing. And, and the first thing he gives us in John 14 is belief. That's the thing, actually. Everything else in the Christian life comes second. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So let's start there. Belief, okay? So we're going to start this morning. Believe in God. But not just an abstract God, the big guy in the sky, you know, you call out, hey, God, help me, but belief in Jesus. And not just Jesus in the sort of cliche sense. You've heard this. What's brown, has a bushy tail, collects nuts. Jesus. <laughs> like, that's what we say in the church, right? We answer every question, Jesus, as if that's, like, no, some of you missed that joke, but it's okay. <laughs> I'm used to it. So, Jesus in the most concrete sense. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That's the Jesus, he, at least Jesus tells us, we need in the face of trouble. Don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm the way, I'm the truth, and the life. So that's how he gets so practical for us here. But another question, what does that even mean? Because see, some of you have heard it, and frankly, you've heard it articulated as a sort of defense of Christianity, right? Jesus is making this claim to exclusivity and, and particularity of, of himself and the way of Christianity. And that's there, you know, like it's important, it's a good conversation to have. I, I'm not suggesting otherwise, this is not me saying there's lots of ways up the mountain. I'm not saying that. Don't listen to it. Don't hear that. But let me just say, considering the context of the trouble in which he injects this declaration, the way, truth, life, he's not articulating merely doctrine for us. Like, if you can just lock and load this, you're going to have this sort of thick book to sort of hit people with out on the street, you know? He's, he's saying, with so much trouble in the world, let me just help you. You're facing trouble. I see this community I love just falling apart. I see the world out there that I died for tearing itself apart. Let me help you. I've come on a rescue mission from God. Will you let me help you? Will you let Jesus help you? This is what he came for. So today we're going to unpack what it means for Jesus to be our help in the midst of trouble. And, and how Jesus, as the way, truth, and life, deals with us, addresses us in our trouble. Okay? And so the outline's pretty simple. We're just going to look at those three parts of this declaration, way and truth and life. Okay? We're going to unpack those. Because um, each of them is unique, though they go together. So if you have a bulletin that you got in, we're, we're going to start with the way and then work our way through it. Okay? So first with the way, this is verses 1 to 5. If you open John 14, you can kind of be there and you'll see what we're talking about. And let me just give you a little more context for this section of, of John, the first five verses. Uh, like I said, Jesus has said, I'm going away. It's time to go. And specifically, he said he's going to prepare a place in his father's house where there's many rooms, okay, like this mansion. And it's going to be a place of rich hospitality and uh, warm embrace and deep fellowship with God, a place where many can come and experience what they've experienced with Jesus, what it means to be home. You know, if you've ever gone home, after a, you know, a long time away, you know what he's talking about. And then Jesus says in this sort of non-sequitur, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas, he's this skeptic and a very pragmatic guy I can kind of identify with. He says, hold on, Jesus. It all sounds good. Like dinner at your house, sleepover, I love it. But you haven't given us directions. Like there was no Evite, I missed it. Uh, how do we get there? How can I follow you to a place I don't know about yet? 
as wonderful as it sounds, show us the way, okay? In other words, it's, it's great to know there's a place, Jesus. It sounds like a great place, <laughs> you know? But we need a map. What I, that's what I really need is a map, Jesus. Like uh, something with steps, you know, like you have your smartphone with your GPS or whatever you use that'll give you the, the, the best route to get there. And I can, like I said, sympathize with Thomas because uh, I recently retook the Myers-Briggs test. How many of you taken this? If you went to SPU, you had to, right? So uh, we retook it as a staff, as the man, a management exercise we did on our staff and just to kind of understand our management styles. And then I had my team, Becca, Jenny, and Andrew, take the test as well to kind of understand how we work together as a team. And so you can probably guess what my uh, Myers-Briggs profile is, ENFP. Typically, that's what it comes out as. So I, I don't like much structure. I love being in front of people. I work on instinct, gut, and I cry easily. That's kind of a summary of an ENFP. Okay. Took the test, and in my working world, as a manager, lead pastor here, and mission pastor for our, our whole church, I'm actually an ENFJ. And so as a manager, people have this acute need to know, right? I, I, have to, I, I need the plan, the map. In fact, this is how I, I ride my bike. And whenever I go on a bike ride, I just can testify to this, I'm always uh, creating the route. It doesn't matter if I've been on the route like 100 times. I don't know why. It's the J in me. I just need to know like all the little turns and stops and things like that. And I don't know about you, but at a level, this is the default attitude of every city dweller, every person living in the city. We're always wazing, right? It doesn't matter if you've been there before or not. You just want to know if there's a better route or Googling your way to things or you're obsessed with the directions or finding, like, and I'm not just talking about the literal experience of driving somewhere from point A to point B. And this is really the default attitude of every one of our hearts. It doesn't matter if you live in the city or not. So, like, God, if you give me a destination... If you tell me where the place is that I'm going, if you, if you give me some clear directions there, I'll go. But I need all that data before I'll even take the first step, whether that's directions in your career or directions in parenting or directions in a relationship, an intimate relationship like marriage, on how to deal with a, a season of doubt. Give me the book on doubt, how I can, can navigate that, right? Uh, confusion, grief, whatever it is. We have a deep need to know. We want to know the future. Then not just the J's in the room. I don't know how many J's there are in here or if you even have a clue what I'm talking about. This is for a lot of us. And to that, Jesus says, I'm the way. Uh, I'm not a destination. I'm not a set of directions. I'm not an app on a phone you can just dial up. I'm the way, the way. And in other words, Jesus is indicating very clearly that we are moving from one place to another. In my Father's house, there's many rooms. I'm going there, one realm to another. And yet our movement towards that realm, uh, in as much as we follow Jesus' footsteps, is constituted by way of a journey, not a set of directions. It's not a destination, necessarily, though he is going somewhere. And it's a journey where we're constantly putting one foot in front of the other. And sometimes we don't know exactly where each step is going to take us next. And much of the time, we don't know every detail of, of the journey. And Jesus is saying, I'm the way, I'm, the way is enough, knowing me. So there's lots of journeys like this in the Bible, like that we can learn from these stories what it means of believing and following step by step. You have Abraham, for example. Uh, Hebrews 11:8 says, Abraham set out on this journey, though he, knew not know, he did not know where. <laughs> and you know Abraham's story. God says, hey, I want you to get up from this land where you're living to an undisclosed location but begin. And I'll show you where to go. Just go. Abraham wants to know how far. God says, just go. I'm the way. 
Abraham wants to know when he'll arrive. God says, just go. You'll learn as you follow. As uh, Charles Spurgeon says some, somewhere, the great moments in history happen when people leave. <laughs> like We learn by leaving. That's the point of I'm the way. Learn by leaving. You learn as you leave, along the way, as you stand in solidarity with others. You learn about what life looks like as you practice hospitality, not visit with Martha Stewart, you, as you practice it and trust and experience God's faithfulness when you fail. That's what the way is all about. That's what it means for Jesus to say I'm the way. It's an invitation to learn from Jesus by leaving with Jesus and walking and trusting God's faithfulness despite not knowing every step. And this has powerful implications for our lives, um, not the least of which is this. Beware of the temptation of fast-forwarding your life. Beware of the temptation of fast-forwarding your life. So Skip Lee, many of you know of Skip. He came uh, to our staff chapel on Monday. So our staff does this once a month as a sort of rhythm. We have a pretty big staff at Bethany. And so once a month, we get all of our staff. There's like 60 of us together, and we just worship, and we pray for the church, and we get to hear from somebody in our community, and usually somebody not from Bethany. So Skip, how many of you guys know Skip? Look at this. Skip is the founder of one of our, our new global mission partner, Agris International. So they help communities, rural, poor rural communities in Latin America acquire land. He also, with his wife and some other uh, leaders in our city, helps establish what's called the Vision 16 house or community, and it's a discipleship community for students at University of Washington. Those that raised their hands were probably part of that, and it's had a significant impact on our city. So he meets with these houses at the beginning of each school year, and he told us he shares these rules of four. You guys remember these? The rules of four. Skip's rules of four. Here's the preamble. He says, an occasionally revised list of life lessons by someone who still has a lot to learn. Skip's in his late 60s, 70s now. Uh, these rules are a composite of who I want to be and try to be and how I'd like to be remembered. And then they're, they're just couplets of four things. There's a bunch of them. Four alwayses, four things to learn, four things to be aware of and avoid, four things to look for in life and hold on to, four great paradoxes and four okays. So under the four things to be aware of and avoid, number one was uh, thinking you found the one true church. Uh, number two is uh, being defined by your circumstances. Number three is putting people in boxes or allowing yourself to be put in a box. And number four is trying to fast-forward your life. Beware of trying to fast-forward your life. That really hit me this week because uh, though I'm a Gen Xer, he was speaking as if talking to a group of millennials. There's a lot of millennials on our staff, a lot of millennials in this room, people born between 81 and 97. And one of the hallmarks of the millennial generation, listen if this is you, is this temptation to fast-forward your life. Uh, you're also called the now generation, the on-demand generation, because of this proliferation of on-demand services like Amazon, Netflix, Uber, Blue Apron. We had a Blue Apron box arrive at our house last night. Eh. <laughs> I mean, Elizabeth, we talked. Yeah, that's okay. But on-demand, like a meal in a box. I mean, literally, the entire meal in the box, with, including ice from Norway or something like that. It was weird. Seemingly, everything in our lives is one click away now, right? Everything, you can imagine. And, we, and because of that, we expect instant gratification, instant answers, and instant services. We are, as Skip said in his little talk, impatient souls. We are impatient souls. That's us. And, I, and maybe that's you if you're 
not a millennial too, if you're a boomer or whoever, you just feel impatient all the time. And Jesus to the impatient soul says, beware. I'm the way. Beware of the temptation of fast-forwarding your life. Like, you'll miss out on so many things in life if you begin to fast-forward to things, binge-watch things, if you, if you just don't slow down a little bit and just follow Jesus in this lifelong, slow, step-by-step process of discipleship and growth. It's a journey. Maturing in Christ is slow. It takes a long time. It doesn't happen one Sunday. It happens over many, many, many months and years, full of peaks and valleys. Uh, it's a process. And, 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 and so in that respect, you can't fast-forward a process. You can't do it. You'll miss out on so much when you do that. And so Jesus says, I'm the way. You need to stay with it. He's reminding us to focus on the journey, not the destination, okay? So every day we're with Jesus. We're just being swept up in this journey. And it's, it's only as we set out and then commit ourselves to the steps along the way that we're going to understand what it looks like to follow him. And then as we learn to respond to the elements of our story that are both good and hard, only then will we, we come to full maturity in Christ. And that's his desire for us. So that's what it means to face trouble with Jesus as the way. Just to step out on a journey and take one step at a time. And not everyone does that. Not every, not every one of us does that in our lives. But those that do, Jesus says, you'll have the resilience and the strength and the courage to face immense trouble. You will. So that's number one, the way of Jesus. Number two is, is the truth. And this is in verses 8 to 11. So kind of sandwiched in between is this declaration. And there's two little kind of uh, illustrations above and below it, okay? So the way above it, you know, and as I just talked about, and then his statement and then the truth below it. And uh, in the same way that he declares he's the way and there's a context to that way, and he, he, he says, I'm the truth. And, and the truth really is just a person. And right there, I could just move on to the third point. That's it. The truth's a person. But there are some massive implications of what that means for us. So let me just unpack it just a little bit. And, which is to say that because the truth is a person, it's deeply personal. You hear that? Because the truth is a person, I am the truth, it's deeply personal. I'm not saying the truth is subjective. Go back to what I said earlier. I'm not saying that Jesus is saying there's lots of ways up this mountain. Pick your route. Uh, there's one commentator that says there are some ways that lead off cliffs. <laughs> so if you're hiking and you know this, there's not every trail's cut the same. And, and so, but Jesus is not talking about that kind of truth. Like it's in opposition to falsehood or cold hard facts and in opposition to alternative facts, you know. He could have been making this exclusivist claim about Christianity. He could have also been uh, saying, you know, I bring truth or Christianity is the truth. But notice he doesn't say I bring truth. He doesn't say Christianity is the truth. He says, I am the truth. And there are times when he does say those things, to be sure, but not here. He's not talking about truth in general, in other words, uh, an abstract idea, something that you know, a Christian loves, the concept of truth. We just love the concept of truth, like a phone book full of truth. You know, in Seattle, 600,000 people. There's lots of truth in there. I don't know if you've ever read the phone book. Do you, any of you know what I'm talking about? If you're millennials, you have no idea. There are these books that were delivered to your house <laughs> that we would use to make prank calls. So back in Spokane. <laughs> Anyway, that's, a, that's truth. As far as I know, there's no, there's no falsehood in the phone books. It's not, that's not the way it's supposed to work. 
but that's not the truth Jesus is talking about. I'm a, you don't know somebody just because they're in the phone book and you call them up, especially of a prank call. Jesus is the truth. And pay attention whenever God says he is something or other. Because what he's doing here, Jesus, throughout John, in these seven different declarations, is he's kind of harking us back to this encounter God has with Moses in Exodus 3, where he encounters Moses in the burning bush, and he says he gets very personal with Moses. Who should I tell them you are? I am who I am. That's who God says he is. I, and which is to say, I'm, I'm the holy other, and yet I'm with you. I am the God of eternity, yet I'm immensely intimate. I'm absolutely true and yet profoundly personal. It seems like a paradox. But look at, look at Philip here in, in, in John chapter 14, in verse 8. Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough. Show, this is what I call his Jerry Maguire moment. Like, like show me the money, God. You know, I'll just, I'll believe then. <laughs> and, you know, Jesus says, uh, seriously? Like, I've been with you all this time, Philip, and you want my phone number? That's kind of weird. Like, of all days, I'm going to die tomorrow, and you're asking for evidence that I'm real? Which is to say, Philip, it's possible to be standing around for years, listening to Jesus, know everything about Jesus, his height, his weight, his hair color, all those things, all the teachings. I mean, these guys recorded Jesus' teachings. They heard it all. Be taught by Jesus. Be involved in Christian activities be feeding the hungry, healing the sick. I mean, Philip was probably doing these things, delivering people from demons, and like completely missed the point. Jesus says it's possible to be busy for us, to be busy in the Christian life, full of knowledge, full of zeal for God, on fire, as we say, and completely miss out on Jesus, not know him at all. It's not only possible, it's normal, he's saying. If Philip is, I mean, Philip, a disciple... Who do you think we are? I mean, we can be all around Jesus, very busy in the Christian life, knowledgeable, and have just gotten it all secondhand. That's what he's saying. It's not just possible, it's normal, and therefore all wrong. Jesus doesn't present himself as truth in a secondhand sense. I am the truth. I am deeply personal in that sense. I'm a person. I remember what he says to the religious leaders in his time put yourselves in their shoes. These are the Pharisees, busy with Christian stuff, you could say, busy with being busy with God, like going to church on Sunday, reading their Bibles. John 5, 39, you study the scriptures diligently. This is Jesus speaking, because in them you think you have eternal life. There's some sort of truth in there for you. These scriptures are the very thing that testify about me. <laughs> and yet you refuse to come to me and have life. I am the truth. You can know about truth. This is what Jesus is saying about God without really knowing God. You can know about God without knowing God personally. And that's, uh, there's a difference, in other words, about being, knowing about God and then knowing God. Knowing about truth and then having personal truth. And that's the difference between walking with Jesus and just doing religion. I don't know about you, but <laughs> I want to walk with Jesus every day of my life, as the source of my confidence and my strength and the fountainhead of, of my faith. And religion's not going to get you there. You can't know about Jesus and, and get there someday. Jesus wants to be known personally.
He wants to help us in the midst of trouble. Which means that, that truth is discovered. This is how you discover truth. When you sit down with Jesus and, and you say, hey, Jesus, I want to get to know you personally. After Sunday, after the pastor shut ups, shuts up, <laughs> I want to get to know you personally. I want to know what you care about. I want to know what burdens you. I want to walk with you, and I want to talk with you, and I want to know the things that are affecting you today. I pray the prayer from Jeremiah. That, that pr- he prayed one day, break my heart, God, with the things that break yours. Have you ever prayed that prayer? God, what, what breaks your heart right now? Would you break my heart? And then, and then you begin to talk to him about the things that really matter to you, <laughs> that affect the way you feel and the, the, what, the things that you do, where you begin to, and then listen to God. His, his love for you. He wants to say things to you about who you are. And that happens when you get personal with God. Truth is a person. Are you willing to have that kind of relationship with God? Are you willing to risk that kind of intimacy and disclosure with God to get that vulnerable? If you are, then Jesus will present himself as the truth. And the truth will set you free. That's what he promises us. So that, so quick summary here. That's the truth. The way is commit yourself to the journey and enjoy it. The truth is uh, in your quest for relationship with God, risk intimacy. And here's the life, okay? I want to finish with this. this is in, and this is really illustrated for us in John 13. That's why we had it read, the last little part of John 13. And in, in this final declaration, it's again context. Jesus says, or Peter says to Jesus, where are you going? So this question keeps coming up. And Jesus says, where, am I going? where I'm going, you can't follow now, but you will follow later. And Peter says, why? I would lay down my life for you. And of course, Jesus says, he knows Peter way too well. Really? Uh, you're not going to, yeah. <laughs> Do you even know what that means? Like Peter's always putting his foot in his mouth. And so the context for that interaction is so critical for us to understand what Jesus means by I'm the life. Because you see, it's so easy, like I said before, to read these verses and to abstract them and think that uh, Jesus is talking about going back to heaven. You know, it's time. Uh, You can't follow now. You're going to follow later. I'm going to go home now. But you can't come yet because I have to get it all ready for you. Just be patient. You know, I've got to clean the house up a little bit. And then you can come. Oh, I'll come get you too when it's the right time. Or when he says later, twice, actually, I'm going to prepare a place for you that he's talking about going and fluffing our pillows or something like that. Like, you know, and I know I'm being silly, but that's what we kind of think, isn't it? Jesus is off to heaven now, you know, beyond this sort of curtain. We can't see him there. That's he's off, right? But think about it for a second. Just think with me. Where does Jesus go from here? Just think of the story. You know the story. Did he go to heaven like, you know, some Star Trek transporter? Was he beamed up? No. (laughs) We all know this. Jesus went first from this story to the Garden of Gethsemane, where his disciples, here's Peter, I'll lay down my life for you, but I need a nap first. They fall asleep on him. And he's, in the the moment, he's said to be crying tears of blood because he's struggling so much with the reality of his death that night or the next day. And yet his friends are just all kind of out for a nap. Like, what in the world? After that, he went into the hands of a group of Roman soldiers summoned there by one of his friends. After that, 
he goes to Caiaphas, the high priest, to be interrogated. After that, he goes to Pilate to be tried. After that, he goes to the cross to be executed. And let's not forget what we profess in our creed. After that, he goes to hell. We confess that Jesus went to hell. Think about that. The, the way to heaven is through hell. Jesus went through hell for us. And that's the backdrop for the declaration of life that Jesus makes. I am the life. It's, and it's so easy to, to read this story, abstract it, and think, forget that context. That this is the, and this is the night of Jesus' deepest and darkest trouble. And so when he says, I'm the life, in the context of those events, he's declaring his identity in the midst of this probing question. Do you, like, do you really know what it means to lay your life down, Peter? I've got something more powerful and profound for you uh, in life and, and what it means to live than what you think it is. Are you, open, are you open to learning this lesson? Leslie Newbegin, he's a commentator or actually a missionary, missiologist that I love. I've quoted before. He quotes in this little section. I love this. I'm going to read it. He says, We see our lives as a journey, but the way ahead whether for our personal and private lives or for the public life of the world in which we share, is closed by a curtain which we cannot see through. Religion has been fertile in producing words to suggest what may lie beyond that curtain, heaven, eternal life, the next world, bliss. But in truth, we cannot and do not see what lies beyond that curtain. We, no one has really, I know there's been a couple books out, but no one has died and come back like that. What instead is made available to us through Jesus is not a sketch of what lies beyond, but a firmly marked way through that curtain. A firmly marked way through that curtain. And then he quotes Hebrews 10.20, the new and living way which he opened to us through the curtain. And here's what he's talking about. Uh, Hebrews 10.20 talks about Jesus as the new and living way. If you read that passage. And this word new, it's just so full of meaning. It's so profound. It's a unique word in the New Testament. Jesus is the new and living way through the curtain. He's ripped it open. Think of this. That word new only appears once in the New Testament, right there in Hebrews 10. And it can mean recent or new or lately made, a new piece of whatever, art. But literally in this context, it means to be freshly slain. A new and living way. And that, wow. Wow. The way of Jesus, the life of Jesus runs through something that people in all places, all times, in one form or another have always feared, and that is death. We are afraid of death. We do everything in our power to resist death in our culture. And that's a good word for us, but also a hard word. The good word is this. We want to live. I think there's good intention behind our efforts to live. We're afraid of it. Uh, death. That's what, why those REI hats are so popular, like life is good or whatever those hats are. It's good to live. And Jesus is inviting us into an experience of life. What does he say in John 10? I've come to give you life, life to the full. He wants us to live. But here's the hard word. He's talking about a radically different form of life than the ones we typically desire to pursue. So the life we often pursue, it's summed up in our, like our declaration of independence, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, right? Uh, and many people, not just us here in, in the United States, around the world have taken up this quest for that last right, like the right to happiness. It's our goal. Happiness is life. So the pursuit of happiness in our Western culture, we've got movies like that Will Smith movie, right? 
or I have this magazine I keep around just to remind myself. It's the Atlantic way back in June of 2009. <laughs> what makes us happy? It's the happiness issue. Friends matter, cholesterol doesn't. So you can go out to Dick's with some friends this afternoon and you'll live longer. That's what I'm saying. No, I'm kidding. Uh, we, the key here is, this hard word is that life in Jesus is never about merely happiness. Life in John 14, Jesus never talks about happiness as life. He never, he never uses that word, <laughs> happiness. I came that you might be happy and happy to the full. Like, that's not Jesus. Instead, he, this is life, Hebrews 10.20, that runs through death rather than running away from it. We would have life that runs away from death. This is life that is brought from death, not ending in it. We think, this is it. Carpe diem, right? And Jesus says, no, there's life that's going to come out of death. This is life that is in juxtaposition to death, not in opposition to it. There is a form of life, he says, which embraces death, which has one final but really critical implication for us. So I shared earlier about the things that are on Skip's list. Actually, I think the most profound are these four great okays. It's okay to use your mind, he says. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to fail. And here's the last one. It's okay to suffer. It's okay to suffer. Skip would know a thing or two about suffering. Uh, he lost his wife this year. And uh, he's learning a few things about suffering. And because of your friendship with him, a lot of you are too. And he's walked with people through suffering in the last 20 years as he's helped lead agros that are suffering from oppressive government, suffering from poverty. He's one of these people that C.S. Lewis describes as a great sufferer. He's a great sufferer. And that's why I can watch him and say, yeah, it's okay, friends. It's okay to suffer. See, the way of Jesus, the way to life, uh, the life of the world is, is this life that embraces suffering. It's the way that's wrought through suffering, his death, which gives us, us this ultimate kind of courage, actually, and confidence that we need. It's okay to suffer. <laughs> Do you believe that? It's okay if you're suffering right now. Back when I was in my early 20s, I had just graduated from college, and uh, I was in a particularly really deep, dark time of trouble in my life, personally. I was in financial debt, so I'd gotten some credit cards in our, you know, our student union building when I was in college and bought stuff. How many of you did that, you know? No interest for four years. <laughs> and then, you know, you know, so I had creditors calling me every day. I'd just broken up in, from a relationship that I'd had throughout college. And my heart, if you've ever broken up with someone, your heart just, it's like your heart's just getting ripped out. I was uh, living in Branson, Missouri, <laughs> That alone is trouble. <laughs> and so many things around me are just swirling. And I'm a new Christian. So I, if you don't know my story, I, I didn't grow up in the church. So I'm figuring this out. And I literally read the Bible through the first time in seminary. I read it before. Don't worry. But I, I was learning things in these first days of my walk with Christ that I'd never learned before. So I'm doing what I, you know, a lot of us did when we were new Christians. Like, okay, Jesus, I'm having a hard time. And, Psalm 69, 
you know, 34, what? You know, you've done that? <laughs> well, I was doing that, and I found 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And this, this passage that has forever encouraged me. Listen to this. This is Paul speaking. We are afflicted, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. We are always carrying around in our mortal bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus might be manifest through our flesh. Death is at work in us. Life in you. So are you facing any trouble today? Are you troubled by the trouble in the world today? It's okay. (laughs) It's okay to suffer. You're invited to relax a little bit by Jesus here. I'm the way. This is part of the journey. You're invited to rest a little bit. I'm the truth. I've come to give you a confidence in a relationship. You're invited to just be embraced by Jesus in your suffering. I'm the life. I've got a life for you that comes through suffering. So if that's you, will you pray with me? And then we'll invite the worship team to come and lead us in response. Jesus, uh, just take a moment to be with you in community. Thank you for the week ahead of us, God. Thanks that there will be moments in our lives to draw near to you. Thank you that you make your, you promise to make your presence known to us when we, when we just stop long enough to listen. So God, I pray for our community, uh, for my friends here, that you would make time in our week to know you as the way and the truth and the life. Thank you for Holy Week that we get to celebrate the story that's been going on for generations of your death and resurrection. God, would you just sweep us up in it today, this week, as we anticipate Easter. Would you sweep us up in your story? And God, I pray for my friends that are facing real trouble in marriages and parenting and work. As we look at the news, we're feeling overwhelmed. Would you meet us, God, in our trouble? And as you meet us, we just thank you that you will meet us. So we pray these things in confidence of your presence, Jesus. Amen.